Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 19, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. That's my proclamation voice for our website. It's, again, PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. You can go there right now if you want to, unless you're driving. So, hey, my name is Rick. I'm the author of... This new book, Spiritual Grit, that was just released a couple of weeks ago, and the book Jesus-Centered Life, released a couple years ago, and editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible. So I'm all things Jesus. Somebody asked me today if I would, because I was the general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, they asked me if I would autograph, if I would sign the Bible. And I said, that's where I draw the line. So I don't want a lightning bolt to hit me, basically. So today we're going to continue with our four-episode taste test of Spiritual Grit, the book that just I just mentioned released a couple a couple weeks ago. We're going to we're exploring some of the central themes of the book, and and the point of the book is to get on board with Jesus, basically, because in every interaction that Jesus had, every single one, he was growing that person's core strength. So. We want to live a life where our core strength is growing all the time because the, the mission that we're on here with Jesus is helping him set captives free. And to do that, you have to have strength to make an impact in the lives of others and in your own life. So, and by the way, none of these pathways to uh, deeper resilience in our life come as a standalone. They all come in connection to our intimate growing relationship with Jesus, that's really the point of spiritual grit. The, the strength that we need in our life is the strength that he has. So today, I told you last week, today we have a very special guest. She's one of the most extraordinary people I've ever known in my life. And by the way, I've known a lot of extraordinary people in the course of my adventure. So I'm going to introduce you, introduce her to you more fully in just a few minutes. But for right now, I just want her to say Hello. And then I'll leave you guessing as to who this might be. Hey, guys. All right. I told her to say hello, and <laughs> she didn't do that. So <laughs> so today we're going to focus on the chapter in the book that's titled Emphasizing Strength of Character Over Accomplishment. Emphasizing Strength of Character Over Accomplishment. So really our focus here is on the building blocks of our identity. So what makes me me? So for instance, kind of a tipping point story for me this is going to sound so funny that it's a tipping point, but it really was a major story in my life. Soon after I graduated from college and I was in my first apartment on my own, it was a two-bedroom apartment. I had a roommate, and I had some close friends from college that, you know how it is, that, that whenever they're in town, they get to come over and see your new apartment. And so one of my close friends was going to visit me one day, and I was showing him around. The, you know, I gave him the apartment tour, which takes like 30 seconds. But we went into my bedroom, and... I still remember this in my in my bedroom. I had a single bed that was jammed into the corner of the room, and there was nothing really else in the room except on the two walls that formed the corner of where my bed was. I had all of my high school and college awards and recognitions on the wall on those walls. They were like directly above the bed. 
So Darren, my friend, is walking around the apartment, ooing and aahing about my bachelor pad, and he gets to my bedroom, and he sees this stuff on the wall. Darren was a, the most casually blunt person I'd ever known in my life. So I'm standing there, and he, he goes, he's looking at the walls, and he goes, oh, it looks like at night you just lay there in bed and sit there and look up at all of your accomplishments and remind yourself of who you are. And he said it with a smile. It was like he had a dagger in his hand, but he was smiling while he jammed it into my chest. So then we walked back out, and I was just, I can't tell you how devastating this was to me, because what he had just said was he sort of like pried open my interior life and exposed it for what it was, because he was exactly right. And that night after he left, I took all that stuff down off my walls, and I put it in a box, and it's been there ever since. It's in our basement somewhere now. I never had those up again, because not because I felt shame, but because I felt exposed, and what he was saying was really so true that I was building my identity off of these accomplishments that I had, and, and I had to look back up on my walls all the time to remind myself, oh yeah, that you, you are something. You're, you're a something, because look, those plaques say that you are. So I tell a story to say, the story that we're telling ourselves about our identity is really crucial, and the building blocks of that story are also crucial to pay attention to. This is really the story of our heart and what drives us. Really, another way of saying it is it's the story of what we stand for and what we won't stand for. So another quick story about this, when Bev and I were a young couple and, and we had our, our first baby, we were in a young parents class. We went through a birthing class, and then it turned into a young parents class. And we got pretty close with the people in this class, and we became very close with one particular couple that Bev and I were sure initially that this was a Christian couple. These were followers of Jesus. Just because they had that kind of um, smell about them, I guess is a way of saying it. They, and what we later learned is they definitely weren't. <laughs> they were atheists. And the woman in this couple had a father who was like a an overshadowing figure in her life. He was like an Indiana Jones kind of character. He, he was an oil man who'd gone all over the world and had all of these incredible adventures. He dominated her life because he was such a distinct and unique character in her life. And um, we heard stories about Leo, her father, all the time. Well, one morning we got a call from our friend who was just sobbing on the phone. She, she was telling us that her father was trying to get his pilot's license updated and he was doing some flying at night with a, uh, an eye guard over his eyes because you have to learn how to fly by instrument, and he slammed into the side of a mountain and instantly died. And she was sobbing on the phone, and she was inviting us to come to—well, they're, they're not believers, so they didn't call it a memorial service or anything like that. They, she was inviting us to come to a gathering at their house in the mountains outside of Denver for this gathering to remember Leo. So Bev and I showed up for this gathering, and it's all of their friends and relatives, and we felt really awkward because, you know, we didn't know any of these people, but we spent about two hours listening to people simply tell stories about Leo. And at the very end of this whole time, the youngest person in the house stood up. He was probably in his early 20s at the time, and I thought, huh, that's interesting. I wonder how he knew Leo. Well, he stood up and he said, I want to share a story with you about how I met Leo. He said, when I was a teenager, I was interested in, in his daughter. So one day I was invited to come over to their house, 
And I thought, and I was kind of nervous because I'd heard all these stories about Leo. So I went to the door and I rang the doorbell. And what do you know? Leo opens the door instead of this girl I was interested in. <laughs> instead of his daughter, Leo opens the door. And the first thing he said to me was he kind of looked down over his glasses, looked at me and said, hello, what do you stand for, young man? And this guy said, and everybody laughed in the room when they heard this, and the guy said, I had never had anybody ask me that question before. And honestly, I didn't know how to answer him in that moment, and I knew I was supposed to. I didn't know what I stood for. And Afterwards, I was driving home from this, and I told Bev, wow, that is the best question ever. To ask somebody, what do you stand for, is the best question ever. And so Bev, because she's Bev, said, well, Rick, what do you stand for? <laughs> and I said, I, it just came out reflexively. I didn't even think about it. I, st- I said, I stand for the glory and honor of Jesus. And I, I would still answer the same way. But that question, what do you stand for, really gets at also your identity, what it is that you're really about when it gets down to the core. And this is really a crucial aspect of spiritual grit. How are we becoming the sort of people who make a profound and good impact in the world and for the kingdom of God? So now, I told you I've asked someone whose character inspires me every day to join me today, and her name is... Her name is Lucy, and she is my daughter. So Lucy... I am so thrilled that you're here, and the reason that she's here is because this chapter that we're talking about right now, uh, emphasizing strength of character over accomplishment, that chapter starts off with a story that Lucy told me that we're going to relive today. So I wanted her to be on the podcast today um, because she really marks the beginning of this chapter. So Lucy, maybe you could just tell tell the gang a little bit about yourself. Okay, uh, sure. So... My name is Lucy, as you already know, and I am just finishing up my freshman year of college. Um, I'm going to Colorado State University, and right now at the moment, I know it sounds all over the place, but I'm majoring in English, I'm minoring in Spanish, and I'm also pre-nursing, which I promise it all fits together in some way. <laughs> I just tell people I'm going to be the most well-rounded person coming out of college. <laughs> I.e., I, I, she does not know what she's going to do yet, no, and she's keeping her true. options open. <laughs> I want to be a nurse, but... Oh, it's too hard to explain. It's it's gonna it's gonna work out then. You want to be a nurse, <laughs> but you don't really want the gross stuff. <laughs> no, I <laughs> I want to be a nurse, but I also like to read and write, and I'm gonna bring that into the medical field. Hopefully, I don't know. Wow. We'll see. <laughs> we'll find out. Um, yeah. So that's and, where I'm at. I have about a week left until I finish my first semester of college, which or my first year of college, which just blows my mind. And it flew by, didn't it? Yes. I've met so many great people and gotten involved in so many great things. It it feels like it's been just a couple months. It's crazy. So a week from tomorrow, or or a little bit after this podcast airs, you're going to be home again. And then what is the summer? Why don't you tell a little bit about what you're going to be doing this summer? Yeah. So for the first half of the summer, I'm just hoping to relax and kind of re-energized from my school year. But then the second half of my summer, I am going to be on staff at a camp for kids and adults with special needs in Missouri. It's called Camp Barnabas. So I'll be there for five weeks of my summer, and um, I'll be in charge of a cabin leading uh, eight to nine campers with special needs and then eight to nine volunteers for the week in my cabin. And one one thing about Camp Barnabas is this is like your fifth year? Is that right? Or yeah. Fourth year? Fifth year? Fifth that- year, I think. 
and we obviously we've heard so many stories from Lucy, but the, <laughs> when she says special needs, <clears throat> she means special. <laughs> the, the the campers that she has worked with have been very challenging in many different ways. And yeah. I, I mean, uh, when you hear that term, it can mean a wide variety of things, but this camp is very challenging because of the extraordinary needs that the people have at the camp. Would yeah. you say that's accurate? Um, yeah, so the mission of Camp Barnabas is um, reaching people of all ages, all the way from 8-year-olds to 60-, 70-year-olds who have special needs and any any range of special need. And their goal is to provide them an experience at camp uh, where they feel like they can do all the things that they're told no every other area of their life. They can go and canoe or they can rock climbing wall or the ropes course. And with that, we're showing um, unconditional love and the unconditional love of Jesus through that. Though lots of times society might not see them for who they really are, Jesus does. And Jesus loves them more than we could ever even imagine. And so the point of the camp is to serve these kids and adults. And adults. Yeah. And so there's we have the whole a whole wide range. Every week um, is a different focus. So we have adult wheelchair week. We have kids autism and Down syndrome week. We have kind of the whole spectrum, um, mm. which is really great. So, so the, the reason that there's a story from Lucy's life at Camp Barnabas that starts this chapter is that when she told me this story, it struck me so much that this story was unusual relative to what we might think of. Like, this is the kind of story that you don't get an award and put over your bed in your first bachelor pad for. <laughs> it doesn't get framed, but it, it speaks to something much more important and much more foundational. So let me just set this up, and then I'm going to have Lucy tell the story again. So by the end of Lucy's five weeks at Camp Barnabas, she's exhausted. She's She's been 24-7 uh, I don't even know how she keeps a pace like she does at Camp Barnabas, but she is exhausted. And so instead of having her drive alone home for uh, 12 or 14 hours, I flew to a nearby airport and met her, and I drove so she could relax. And all I wanted to do for those 12 hours is just hear her stories. I just wanted her to tell me as many things as she could, and it was so rich and wonderful. I'll never forget that drive home, by the way. <laughs> so it was. A, we were about three hours in, so she'd already told me some real highlight stories. <laughs> and by highlight, I mean, I can't believe you did that, <laughs> stories. And one of her stories that seemed, I, I think I asked you, what's something that was like an everyday challenge? What's something that's not like, oh my gosh, but was like, you, you had to do, but it was very challenging, but it represented something that was very typical about your day. So so why don't you tell the story now that you told me then? Sure, yeah. So this is definitely a story that happens every day at Camp Barnabas. Um, I experienced in different ways multiple times throughout all my weeks at camp. But one of, one of the last weeks I was at camp, we had a camper. And so we have a rule at camp, so you can never just be alone with a camper. So it's a staffer normally, the camper, and then their, their missionary, their volunteer for the week with them. Um, and we were all in one room watching a movie, and the camper came up to us and said she had to go to the bathroom. And so we walked her out of the, the room, and we were on this porch with tons of shoes from all the people still watching the movie. And she could not hold it and went to the bathroom all over this this floor where all these people are and all these shoes are. And this is one of those moments where you're the leader in the situation. People are looking to you to know what to do, and you sit there for about 
a couple seconds and just think, I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing in this situation. There's no way they can train you for all the different things you experience at Barnabas. And so you're standing there and you're like, okay, well, I have to do something. And lots of times, especially at Barnabas, if you look at the big picture of what you're supposed to get done, it is overwhelming and it's not a good place to start. So the thing I learned is I just am going to take this one step at a time and just figure out one problem at a time. Uh, so as soon as she went to the bathroom, I grabbed all the shoes near me and threw them to the other side of the deck so that no, none of the other shoes got soiled. Um, and then I asked two people that were standing on the deck if they would stand um, around this puddle so that no one else stepped in it. Um, and then I had to decide what to do. We um, And it's pouring rain, as I recall, yeah, right? Yeah, so it's... so. The problem is we're on this deck. It's pouring rain outside. It's only me and this missionary and the camper, so we don't have, like, an extra person to come help us. We have to get her to the bathroom, but the cabin's about a half mile away. Explain what a missionary is, because that's oh, um, terminology. So, so a missionary is basically a volunteer that comes for one week, and they're partnered with a specific camper that they're with 23 hours of the day the entire week. And so they live in the cabin with us, and the staffers are kind of in charge of the missionaries and the campers and kind of, like, coordinate all of it. So, yeah, so it's pouring rain. We're about a half mile from where the cabin is. We're supposed to be at dinner in 10 minutes, um, and this camper's clothes are completely wet, and now there's a pile, there's there's water on this, this deck floor where in the next five minutes when the movie finishes, there's going to be about 50 people coming out of this place to go to dinner. Uh, and so I pushed the shoes away, then decided, okay, we're going to go to the bathroom to make sure she's good. So we walked over to the bathroom. I found somebody that was in the bathroom that could stay with them and then went to the kitchen, got cleaning supplies, went, cleaned up everything, sanitized everything, then went back to the bathroom, got the camper and her missionary. And then we walked the half mile in the pouring rain back to the cabin. So then we're at the cabin, and again, I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do? <laughs> Everything on her is wet, including her one pair of shoes that she brought for the week. And we're supposed to be at dinner, and now, like, now. <laughs> and so I ended up having her change into all new clothes, change into new socks, and then we had this problem with the shoes. She cannot go without her shoes, but she has one pair, and they are wet. So... Now, I don't know if this was the best thing to do in the situation, but when you're in those kind of situations, you just have to make a decision and go for it. So we sprayed her shoes down with hand sanitizer. I gave her missionary gloves so that if her shoes need to be tied or anything during the night, her missionary would put on gloves first. And then we went to dinner. And when she was asleep that night, we ended up washing her shoes and sanitizing them. Uh, we got to dinner about like five minutes late and sat down and I let my um, co-staffer know, hey, we just had to fix the problem. Sorry, we're late. So <laughs> so this this is the story she told me in the car. And again, think of the context here. It was 12 hours of stories. This is about three <laughs> hours in. She told this story like this was the most normal thing in the world to do. And it just so struck me in the moment. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that is an extraordinary story that's just embedded in your everyday life. I wanted to I, I want to read you an excerpt from Spiritual Grit that comes right after. Um, I, I had Lucy tell me the story, and I typed while she told me the story, and so that's the story that's in in the book. I want to just read you a little section of the book that comes right after her story. So here I go into my reading voice. <laughs> so I doubt the P incident will appear on Lucy's Nobel Prize nomination. <laughs> It's not the sort of achievement we typically celebrate, but it's clear 
that this kind of experience is helping Lucy develop strengths that will fuel her impact on the world for the rest of her life. Challenging responsibilities that require fast, creative problem-solving are a rich fertilizer for growing spiritual grit. So the leaders at Camp Barnabas like to say it's a yes camp. Uh, Lucy's already mentioned that, by the way, but here's what that means. Special needs people are accustomed to the no's that govern their lives. So the camp's mission is to plunge them into the kinds of camp activities that all able-minded and able-bodied kids experience. If a camper wants to try something, the answer is always yes. But the camp is also intent on creating a transformational culture because it stresses strength of character over the pursuit of accomplishment. A research team led by Harvard Business School professor Bill George interviewed 125 leaders to learn how they developed their strengths. In his final report, George made this observation, quote, Analyzing 3,000 pages of transcripts, our team was startled to see that these people did not identify any universal characteristics, traits, skills, or styles that led to their success. Rather, their leadership emerged from their life stories. Consciously and subconsciously, they were constantly testing themselves through real-world experiences and reframing their life stories to understand who they were at their core. In doing so, they discovered the purpose of their leadership and learned that being authentic made them more effective. So the message of this research is simple and profound. We discover our core essence in the context of challenging circumstances that require spiritual grit to overcome. And the narrative we tell ourselves has tremendous power to shape our response to tough situations. Stretching experiences expand the boundaries of our character and give us a better story to tell about our purpose and impact in the world. At the end of the summer, all Camp Barnabas staffers receive a plaque to honor their service. It features a laminated photo of a staffer helping a camper. So authentic strength of character is quietly celebrated as the highest value, and all achievements are subordinate to a determination to serve. So there's a little portion of the book. So I think it captures, Lucy's story so much captured for me the point of what spiritual grit really is all about. It's, it's entering into challenging situations, not because of the hope of accomplishment, and Lucy and I will talk a little bit later about what motivates people to do this, because there is no accomplishment <laughs> in the normal sense of the word that comes out of it. In fact, you could make a case that often because of the particular issues these campers are facing, they can't even properly thank the people that are serving them. They actually sometimes, the, the staffers serving them sometimes have very difficult things to overcome in serving them, and there's no thank you for it. Um, so what is it that draws people to this environment? So Lucy and I will talk about that in just a minute. But I want to skip over to the story that frames this chapter. Every chapter in the book uh, has a story about Jesus engaging someone that exemplifies that particular core strength training. So in this, this particular chapter about strength of character over accomplishment, I chose a story of Jesus responding to the mother of James and John in Matthew 20. So if you're not driving right now and want to flip open your Bible to Matthew 20, this is in Matthew 20, 20 through 28. And uh, Lucy, as I read this, I just want you to be thinking about what you see in the context of this story about the, the way that Jesus is responding to the mother of James and John and why he's responding the way he does. So let's, let, let's read. Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. 
She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied, we're able. Well, Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My Father has prepared those places for ones he has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others." and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there's this curious engagement. In the book, I'd compare this mother of James and John as a sort of stereotypical hovering Jewish mother <laughs> who, wants her, who wants her sons to have the best possible trajectory and, and to get the best honors. And it's kind of an awkward reality show moment in the, in the New Testament that, they, that she comes to Jesus in this very sort of formal way to ask for this very formal designation for her two sons, and she's so brazen. She does this right in front of all the other disciples. She's basically saying, elevate my sons to a status that's near your own, Jesus, while all of the other disciples are standing there watching this encounter. So this is an extraordinary, I think, moment that Jesus has. And so when you think about that story relative to the theme we're talking about here, character over accomplishment— what, what do you see that Jesus is doing in his response here? Yeah, so what really struck me, I think, most with this is that um, Jesus is always turning the tables on people and always moving countercultural. And sometimes we don't realize it today because the countercultural things he said back then have now become kind of cultural things, but he was constantly pushing back against um, the norms and just... Even the phrase, those who will be great among you must be your servant, that in itself um, just just blows me away because every area of our lives, that is, that is the exact opposite. In our culture, especially in the college culture, it's work harder to be better, um, which I know is a phrase you use a lot, but this phrase of um, we, you need to work harder so you can be a better person, to be a better leader, so that you can get more money. And, and in this, Jesus kind of flips that right on its head. And he's speaking here about these are all identity issues because what the mother wants is a greater identity for her sons, and she thinks the path to that will be through accomplishment and honor. Right. And when you're talking about he's flipping the tables on this, he's, he's not diminishing the idea of growing your identity into something impactful. He's just saying that way, the path of accomplishment and honor won't do that. And he introduces this whole deal of like, okay, if that's what you want, are, are you guys able to, to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I'm about to drink from? And it just, their response proves they have no idea what he's talking about. Really? They have no idea what this is required. It's like saying to somebody with Camp Barnabas, you're trying to recruit somebody to go there and serve there. And you, you say, do you think you'll be able to do this? And them not knowing at all what's going to be required of them. Oh, sure, I'm sure I'll be able to do that. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think one of the big things being on staff at Barnabas this year or this past summer was watching a lot of missionaries come in who had never worked with people with special needs and being like, oh, I got this. And then they get their camper and it hits them like, oh, I'm in charge of like a human life for a week. Like this is somebody that I am going to be with in hard moments during this week. And it humbles a lot of people. It brings a lot of things to the surface. I'm sure you've seen sort of this overwhelming feeling wash over people sometimes like a tsunami uh, right in front of you. Yeah, I actually um, had a camper one of my weeks that was was a more challenging camper to work with. Um, She would become violent um, to get attention and was unpredictable. And I had a missionary that was partnered with her that had never worked with special needs before and was actually a very young missionary to have her own camper. And um, the second night of camp, um, I ended up sitting in this back closet with her for about an hour and a half as she like sobbed with me. And she just kept saying, I can't do this. I can't do this. Um, this is too much. I'm scared. I, I don't know what I'm doing. And that was a challenging moment for me as I sat there. Um, and the thing I kept telling her was hard isn't bad. And I know this is hard right now. I know this is out of your comfort zone, but this is something you need to push through. I know this is going to be good in the end. And the crux of that was I believed she needed to be pushed in that way. I think Barnabas surfaces a lot of identity and securities in people. And that, even that story, I'm just, as you're, I'm listening to you tell me that story again, I'm thinking what's happening in that moment is you're inviting her, calling out her character, because her character, right. in order for her to persevere through that experience, her character's going to have to grow on right. the spot. Right. I could um, tell from what she was saying that the underlying message that maybe she didn't even realize she was saying was, I'm inadequate and I can't rise to this challenge. Right. So you need to tap me out. And that, just think about that <clears throat> if you're listening to this. Think about the narrative that she's telling herself. I started off by saying the way we build our identity is we tell ourselves a story about who we are. And there mm-hmm. she is telling herself a story about who she is. And it's a destructive story, and if it goes unchallenged, and if she's not able to push through it, that story can become embedded in her life for the rest of her life. Right, and that's what I was worried about, is it would have been so much easier for me to be like, okay, you know what, I know it's your first time at camp, we'll switch up campers, you're going to be fine, let's give you something easier. And instead, I spent a long time with her sitting there, and was like, nope. This is something I want you to, I know this is hard, but this is something I want you to take and I want you to keep persevering through because I think it was critical to her growth. I think that was a tipping point for her. Yeah, and you said something before that I want to go back to just for a second here. You said that um, the thing that struck you about this story is how Jesus always upends whatever was happening there. Uh, And it made me think, I created this little... um, this, not that, uh, little table in this chapter, and it's it's a comparison between conventional values and kingdom of God values. So this is what Jesus is doing in this situation. He's he's addressing the conventional value that's being thrown at him, and he's upending it. So let me give you an example of what that means. A conventional value in this story is that, or, or just in general, is that leaders lord it over their people, and they remind them who's in power and who's not. And Jesus contrast that with the kingdom of God value, that is, leaders expect their service to others to cost them pleasure, not add to it. Or here's another one, a conventional value is that leaders use their authority in unnecessary ways just to keep people in their place. In the kingdom of God, 
that value, says Jesus, is that leaders focus on the needs of others, studying them to find ways to bless them, not to keep them down. And then this comparison goes down. So Jesus here is is contrasting the, our default settings mm-hmm. and trying to upend those default settings and say, no, no, the in the culture of the kingdom of God, this is how it's done. And what's happening in Lucy's, your story right there, is that the conventional value, which is if it's hard, you need to get out of it. If it's right. hard, if right. it's really hard, you need to do <clears throat> something easier. And what's happening in this moment is that is being contrasted with the kingdom of God value, which says, even though it is hard, you must persist, so that the story you tell on the other side of this is, it was harder than anything I've ever done, but I did it. Right, and and part of the thing I was worried about is her narrative, if she gave up, would be, look, I went and I couldn't do it. And look, isn't this just another reason for why I don't think I'm adequate in many areas? Exactly. It was, and I didn't want that to be a part of her, her narrative of the week. That's so good. So one of the foundational premises in Spiritual Grit is taken from something Paul wrote about in Romans 5, 3 through 5. So again, if you're not driving and you want to flip over to Romans 5, you can do that. It's verses 3 through 5. This is sort of the sort of the tagline of the book, the foundation of the book. So listen to this progression that Paul gives. It's brilliant. So we have to slow down a little bit and pay attention to this brilliant progression that he throws out there. But here's what he says. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials. So right away there's dissonance. We can rejoice when we run into problems and trials. What are you talking about? So he says, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. So this is kind of a domino effect thing Paul is saying. He's saying we know that encountering really hard things can lead to developing endurance. And here's the domino effect. If we develop endurance, then our character grows. If our character grows, our hope grows. So I got to stop right there. Really what this is about with this girl that you're talking this through with is the, the difference between hope and not hope. Yeah. Because the hope that comes from her character will tell her, even though this is hard, I can do it. Because I remember when I did that hard thing, and I made it through. Right. So the hope is the result of her character growing, and, it, and Paul says, and that hope doesn't lead to disappointment. It's the opposite, actually. And then he adds this thing at the end, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. He's saying this doesn't happen in isolation. This all happens in the context of the knowledge of Jesus' love for us in the moment. So even though your approach with her seemed hard and like, I'm not going to let you take the easy way out, what really was present there was the love of Jesus. Yeah. That, that's what is motivating uh, yeah. this forward. So, so the, the Holy Spirit develops our character by conforming us to, to the character of Jesus. And the conforming happens because we're immersed in the presence of Jesus in the midst of these situations. When we put ourselves in challenging, stretching situations, it creates a natural dependency that forces us into greater immersion with Jesus, greater closeness and intimacy. And when we get close to him, he starts to infect and affect the basis of our character. So my, right. my friend Steph Hilbury, the other day, uh, we were talking about, well, why is it that 
these challenging, hard circumstances have this to do, have this kind of power to bring us into closer relationship with Jesus. She said a funny thing. I have to, I wrote it down. She said, well, hard circumstances have more power than Jesus just giving me everything I want, for example. (laughs) And if you think about it, it's so true. I mean, the thing we want is for him to give us everything we want, but that doesn't really leverage us into any kind of change or growth of character. So so when we draw near to Jesus and abide in him, we get our strength from him. And that means that uh, as we, uh, for instance, pray more or read the Bible more or depend on him more or simply talk to him more about what our everyday life is like, we experience more fruits in our character because we're drawing near to him. So it's like the mirror that Jesus mentioned in his little parable. He said, you know, he was talking about foolishness and and our human nature, and he says, you know, we're like people who look in the mirror, and when we look away from the mirror, we forget what we look like. That's what we are as human beings. So he's really saying, you need to look often at the mirror, and the mirror is me. You need to be often looking at me so you remember who you are because you forget who you are. I, I was thinking about this today because a strong mirror, in especially for young people in, in your age group, Lucy, is social media. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's a huge mirror. <laughs> yes. And what the research that just came out this last week was that, that they did uh, a massive uh, generational research project to find out the loneliness factor of every generation. How lonely do people feel? And it, the results were kind of semi-shocking because the older you get, the less lonely you are. So elderly people, who you would think mm. those those people might be the most lonely because they've lost friends and family, and but they're the least lonely people, elderly people. And the most lonely people are the youngest people, those that have been raised on social media and have been in front of that mirror their whole life say that they feel the most lonely in life. Right. And well, and that's one reason why. So um, I made a very conscious decision um, a while ago that I was not going to get any social media other than a Facebook because I, I needed that actually for my job. But I did not want any other forms of social media because the tendency to compare oneself on social media and 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 take like the mirrors that social media gives and take them at face value and take them as this is a this is a mark on my identity is so easy and I know I I'd slip into it and so I made a very conscious decision not to be a part of that I didn't actually even get a smartphone till my junior year of high school um because I and you are by the way probably the only person in high school <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'd pull out my flip phone and everyone would kind of turn at me like what is that <laughs> but I did it it was not something I slipped into is a very conscious decision because I wanted to have people in my life and and the Lord and other things talk to my identity and not social media. Yeah, and that th- this idea that the mirrors we're paying attention to is so crucial. Mm-hmm. Jesus is trying to make this point that our identity matters because everything flows out of our identity yes. and our character. Therefore, the way you are mirroring your identity is crucial, and the only true mirror is me. And I think, I think especially in young people, the number one thing that everything comes back to is identity. Everything, the hyper-focus on what other people think of us, everything circles back to identity. And, and, I'm, and I know this is true, that the age that you're at, a freshman in college, 
uh, where identity is a huge issue, people are like scrambling in a confused, chaotic way, <laughs> trying to figure out how to build that identity. Yeah, I think it's, I think there's panic. I think there's this panic of, I'm not with my family anymore, which is, especially when you're young, your family is your identity. And now you're totally separated from your family and all of these different people from these different backgrounds. And oh my gosh, I have to figure out what I'm doing in my life. And the underlying thing is I need to know who I am. And what you stand for and what yes. you don't stand for at the yeah. same time. And yeah. and truthfully, it's panic, I think, especially in the freshman class. There's this this sense of urgency of I need to figure this out and figure it out fast. And then I need to stand my ground. And so then, and you also see a lot of, <clears throat> of young people experimenting with ways to form their identity or to mirror back their identity. They, yeah. they do crazy things. And I see a lot of pain. I see a lot of pain where people have let other people speak to their identity that shouldn't be speaking to their identity. And I've just seen a lot of people who are vulnerable and it hurts when then that is not the truth of your character. And this is all the reason why it's so important for us to pay attention to and emphasize the the growing strength of character underlying all this rather than the surface fixation on accomplishment. So right. well, go I, ahead. I just, I just want to say one other thing with, you were talking about the fruits and how this dependence on Jesus produces natural fruit. Yep. And I think the key word is natural there. And I think we often focus on the fruit. We want to get the fruit. That's, that's a lot of the identity crisis in college is, oh, okay, so confidence. How do I get confidence? I'm going to try to portray this air of confidence. Um, and the problem is, it doesn't start with the fruit. The fruit is the product of something deeper. And that deeper thing is reliance on Jesus. And from that, fruit comes, but it's not work. Right. It's not so work good. because yeah. it's it's just an outpouring of God loves me and I love him back. And this is what is happening because of that. Yeah. So I wanted to ask Lucy some, some sort of rapid fire questions here about, <laughs> about Barnabas. But I told you at the start, that she's one of the most extraordinary people I've ever known. Well, now you know what I'm talking about. So I want to I want to talk to you, Lucy, about what this thing that I teased before. So what do you think draws you and others like you into this camp, the Camp Barnabas culture that really does offer little on the way of typical conventional accomplishment glory, you might call it? Yeah. And it doesn't even offer the bare minimum of gratefulness sometimes yeah. for what you're doing. Yeah. So what do you think draws you to this? Is it just like the thrill of having survived a terrible <laughs> hardship, like going to boot camp? Or what is it that draws you so powerfully? Because I know it's not just you. There's many young people your yeah. age who absolutely love serving at this camp yeah. and can't wait to get there. And you talk about it like it's the greatest thing ever. And and your mom and I are always listening to your stories like, now what was great about that again? <laughs> Yeah, um, it's definitely um, people go to Camp Barnabas and they come back changed and they say it impacted the trajectory of my life. And I think what draws people in is doing hard things with great people is something we don't get the opportunity to do in our lives normally. Hmm. And I think it comes back to we don't have very many opportunities to go all in and serve someone with everything in us. And when you do that through the Lord and not through your own strength, powerful things happen. It is when we're able to take the focus off of ourselves for a week, there's no technology at camp. There's no time to really think about yourself. Um, these, these missionaries that come for a week at a time, they're with, they have an hour off during the day. But other than that, they're with their camper all the time. 
And if their camper wakes up in the middle of the night, you're waking up in the middle of the night. And that level of focus on somebody else, I think is very much needed and grows so much in us during the week that it it changes everything. I was just thinking as you were talking about that, I met with an old friend of mine uh, this last weekend, a very dear friend of mine whose son has been um, in the military um, for the last, I, th- I think he's been in the military for the last six years, and he's about to get out. He's he's completed his, his required military service, and he had to decide whether he was going to re-up again or not. And a huge percentage of the of the officers that he knows that came up with him are recommitting to the military. Mm-hmm. And he's dec- made this really hard decision to get out of the military. So my friend was telling me why this decision is so hard for his son. And the primary reason is they know they can't find the level of hard hardship that they faced. And he went three tours of duty in Iraq. Mm-hmm. So they can't find that level of hardship in the real world in, surrounded by a close-knit community. Right. And, and so they're willing to put their lives at risk again because the community they found was so deep, so powerful, so transforming that they can't imagine living the rest of their lives outside of that. And so it kind of speaks to what you're talking about, this Camp Barnabas effect, that we have a hunger to grow transformationally. Yes. And this this progression that Paul's talking about where it leads to endurance, to character, to hope— and the hope doesn't disappoint us, is a powerful progression in our lives. Hope is the result of this. I would say, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that's true, that your experience in, at Barnabas in doing these things has created a foundation for hope in you as you face new hard challenges? Yes, of course. Yeah. And I, I think for these people that come to Barnabas for a week— Hope has grown because they're seeing not only what they can do, but they're also seeing what they can do with the Lord. The power. So, what, let me make sure I understand that. You mean that they see possibilities in their relationship with Jesus that they didn't before? Yeah. One of the great things that I think, like you intro with your book, is you talk about this phenomenon where, like, now moms drive to the bus stop and sit in their car with their kids when it's snowing outside so that the kids can sit in the warm car all the way up until when the bus gets there. And while that's short-term love, it's not long-term love, and these kids need to grow grit. And I think in our culture today, there is a longing for to, to do hard things and to do them with great people and, and, and have this sense of hope and endurance, and there is a lack of opportunity to do it. That's good. So another thing I was curious about is, when you think back to your Barnabas experience, and I know you've had other difficult experiences in life. We're just focusing on this one right now because it's 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 a really good metaphor for all this. So when you think about your experience with at Barnabas and maybe even some other service experiences you've had, how do you actually see it shaping your character? And what does character even mean to you? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a weighty question. What does character mean? Thank yeah. you for that. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Well, you are. <laughs> You have almost finished your freshman year in college. Oh, yeah, so so I'm an expert on this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I would would say lots of times when I'm in the Barnabas experience, I don't actually see my character growing because I'm in the moment. Yeah. Like when when I was cleaning up 
from, you know, this, this accident and trying to figure out how do I get her from A to B and get her in clean clothes. Um, I wasn't like, oh, I think I'm in developing endurance right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was worried about like getting her, yeah, where she needed to go. That's so funny. I got to stop there for a second. When your character is being stretched, you it is literally impossible to have the thought, oh, yes. my character's being stretched. <laughs> Normally you're not having a great time. <laughs> Um, but I think it's once you come back from one of those experiences that you're able to process. And that's when I realized like, wow, look what I did in this situation and I was able to do it. Um, and it even, I think, comes out even more when I start to walk through other with other people, difficulties they're facing, um, because I'm able to say, hey, this is something I experienced. And these are some of the things that I've found that can help you get through this. And I think that's where I see my character my character come out is kind of in the aftermath of the more the more difficult experiences. Yeah, here's a harder question that's almost like a PS to this. <laughs> so the PS to this is I make the case in the book that these experiences that that as they're yielded to Jesus, as we cling to him in the midst of these of these experiences, and therefore this progression that Paul talks about happens in us. When this happens, it changes what I call our core essence. Mm -hmm. Our core essence is really the influence we have in our relational circles. Mm -hmm. It's not the things we say or the things we know or the expertise we have or the hobbies we have. It's the kind of sense that you have when somebody walks in the room and the climate in the room changes because of that person. You know that there's a powerful core essence in that person. And I've met many people who just change the game when they walk in the yeah. room. And it's not because of what they say, it's because of something deep. It's like the nuclear reactor at their core. And this is really what Jesus is trying to shape in us, is a core essence that has a catalytic impact in the relational spheres we're in, because he had a catalytic impact with his core essence in every uh, relational situation he went into. So the, the, the PS question here is, how have you seen evidence that your core essence is changing through this, just through this experience with Barnabas, how would you say you've been able to influence in your life and bring good impact in the world because just of the way it's changed who you are deep inside? Yeah, so I think, yeah, core essence or like the presence you bring in right. is huge. And um, it's something that's a lot harder to put your finger on um, because it's not like, oh, this is one thing I did this one time. But I think with that, I think your core essence comes from what am I centered around? And I'm centered around Jesus and also serving people and showing people that they have their worth. That's one of um, the things that has come out of camp. Kind of my life mission statement is all people yearn to be seen, known, and loved. All we have to do is take the time to stop and listen. And that's something that has come out of Barnabas because not only do the campers need love and acceptance and belonging when lots of times in their lives they receive none of that they're pushed to the margins but a lot of these missionaries coming in for a week are desperate for somebody to see them and know them and point out things in them and so um, that's the biggest thing that I think has come out is that's part of now my core focus in any, any relationship I'm involved in is okay, I, I want to see this person. I want to know this person. I want to love this person. And not on a surface level. Um, I want to speak to their character. And I think even if I don't say that, that is something that people pick up on. Mm -hmm. 
it's kind of like when you start a conversation and somebody asks you a question and you can just tell they don't really want to hear your response. They just kind of were asking the question because it was what they were supposed to do. And it's not like something that is verbally said, but you can sense that, oh, they really don't actually care about my story. And so I think um, one of the big things I've come out of is how do I show that, no, I care about this story. So, so you just used a word that's so important. They can sense it. So the what they're yeah. sensing is your core essence. Yeah. What we sense in other people is their core essence, and it makes a huge difference. I can even say, I, I've, I've told friends that one of the great joys of having a daughter grow into an adult is, and Lucy has definitely been this in my life, is that, uh, you know, for two years I spent writing this book on spiritual grit. I was going through some of the most challenging years of my life, and just writing the book was a huge challenge. And her story, her essence of how she's carried herself through these difficult situations has inspired me to to gain strength in the midst of my own. That's what we do for people. <laughs> That's what we do for people with our core essence. We give them strength. They feed off of what they experience in us. That's why it's that's why it's so important because it that's actually setting captives free from whatever they're captive to. Yeah. It's our core essence that really helps people do that, and that core essence is formed by Jesus, but it also tastes like Jesus. That's the difference. So uh, one thing about challenging circumstances is that they almost universally make us feel weak, where we're in a position where we need to trust Jesus or not trust Jesus. So one question for you is, what what, what does trusting Him actually look like on a practical level? If you think about your Barnabas' experience with all of the challenge you face, and we say, well, I had to trust Jesus, and <laughs> we think we know what that means, but what does that actually look like? What is the process of trusting Him in the midst of it look like for you? Yeah, I think for me, trust has actually been something that has been kind of brought up over and over again in my life because um, I don't know if you're like me, but I like control. I like to hold on to things <laughs> and it's much easier to rely on my own strength than God who I can't even see. I'd much rather, I, you know, I, I can rely on my own strength in this. I don't need the Lord. And so what does, what does trust look like in the middle of that? And I think for me, it's recognizing I don't have it all together and I don't have to work hard. Um, there's times in my life when I can just feel like I'm fighting um, inside. There's just this, there's an exhaustion from just working so hard. And then there's a release when I'm able to say, okay, God, I'm going to stop fighting in this situation. Something that It's I kind of a giving over yeah. of, of the battle to him. In yeah. A way. Yeah. And I think, and it's something that I have to do all the time because I, my biggest tendency is to slip right back into putting it on my shoulders because that seems safer to me. And I think one powerful thing that's recently been really good for me to remember that I think was something either you or mom told me, but um, this idea of trust the heart of the storyteller for he is telling a good story. Mm. And that hits me every time because I think the core of my struggle with trusting God is I don't trust his heart in it. I don't trust that he's going to pull through in the end. I don't trust that he's got my best interests at heart. Mm -hmm. And out of that comes this reliance, okay, I'll put it on me. I don't, I don't fully trust that you're going to pull through in the end for the, with this Jesus. And, um, so I have to be reminded like, no, he's, he's, he's 
telling a good story in my life. Yeah, that's it's really good. And the 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 idea there is that when we're reading a really good book or watching a really good movie, and it's well told, you don't know what's going to happen next when it's a really good movie or a yeah. really good book. <laughs> and that really is our life. And the question is, do you trust where the storyteller is taking this story or not? Because, of course, the person could take the story to a debased place that isn't redemptive. They could take the story that way, but when we read read or watch a really good story, we have a deep hope in us that the storyteller is going to take this story to a really good place, and we're unsatisfied if they don't. So that's really trusting the heart of the storyteller and where they're taking it. And and it's trusting the heart of the storyteller. It's not trusting that things are going to go well. Right. There might be a—the next chapter might have a totally unexpected and difficult twist. Right, and it's uncomfortable to not know what's going to happen. It's uncomfortable, and it's hard, but it's it's how God is calling us to live, and it's it's transformational in the end. That's good. You know, in the in the last part of the book, I highlight four things that help us to lean into character building over accomplishment, and they're— they're interesting things. To, I just invite you to go get a copy of the book, go into greater depth with these four things. That What I'm trying to do here with these four is, what are some experiments, some simple ways to lean into these four things in our everyday life? It's not a to-do list. It's not a list of shoulds. It's just if you want to put yourself in a position where your character is being strengthened, and you're emphasizing that over the surface accomplishment that the, that the rest of the world says we should be pursuing, here's some ways to, to stretch yourself. So these four areas are humility. So I give some ways, everyday ways to, to experiment with humility. And the second one is stretching circumstances, literally uh, injecting yourself into circumstances that stretch you. The third is developing gratefulness, which it's interesting that in the American military, when they're trying to adopt some of the research findings of the research into grit, the secular research into grit, what they learned is that gratefulness is a foundational building block for grit. So they've started training recruits in basic training on how to be grateful. It helps them develop perseverance in the midst of whatever hard thing they're facing. So there's some uh, experiments in gratefulness I offer in the book. And then the last one is generosity, which is very close to gratefulness. It's how can you be, in an everyday way, generous in very low-shelf ways and more demanding ways. So if you want to learn more and go into greater depth with those, uh, pick up a copy of the book, especially in this in this 30 days since the book has launched. I, I just ask you to go go buy it on Amazon. We, we offer it on our st- store at group.com, and we'd love for you to go there to get it. But in this first month, go to Amazon instead. Buy it there. And the reason why is when, when you buy it there, Amazon perks up its ears and, li- and watches and goes, oh, there's people buying here. I'm going to highlight this book even more when people do that. And after you've read it, leave a review on Amazon, because that's another thing that uh, Amazon's algorithm looks for. They just kind of promote things that are getting attention. So... That's what we're asking you to do is, is go to Amazon. It's, it's kind of like a quasi-missionary assignment for you <laughs> because you can go help others find freedom from their captivity and develop their core strength if you help draw attention to this book that will help them. So that's the way you can do it. Um, I wanted to give Lucy a chance to talk a little at the close here about a need that Camp Barnabas has 
that maybe some of you listening, uh, either it speaks to you or someone you know it speaks to. So why don't you tell them about that need? Yeah, so I know I shared some kind of harder stories uh, from Camp Barnabas. Not so <laughs> yeah, you're far. a great recruiter, Lucy. <laughs> yeah, um, but but Camp Barnabas, truthfully, is one of the most transformational experiences I've ever had. It is a beautiful place to serve others with everything in you and to do great things. Um, and even just a week out of your summer, you get to go. It's a beautiful part of Missouri and like canoe all week and go on ropes courses and go in this enormous pool and rock climb and all that kind of stuff with um, people with special needs. And it's powerful. Um, and Camp Barnabas has this incredible mission. But this summer, they're really short volunteers that are going for one week at a time. And they're also really short male staffers. And we can't Barnabas runs with these volunteers, especially because of the level of special needs that we have at this camp. Um, we have like about a three to one ratio where three people for every one camper um, to serve these people and to love them to the best of our ability. And so Camp Barnabas is looking for churches to come down for a week or individuals to come down for a week and volunteer for a week uh, or male staffers to come for half the summer or the full summer. Yeah, there's a special, um, they have a special need for more guys this yeah, summer, don't they? Yes. Yeah, because girls cannot be with a guy camper. Um, and if this taps into you in any way, um, I encourage you to go to their website, check them out, say there's some great videos. I'm going to be there. You can <laughs> come say hi to me. But uh, this is just one of the best opportunities. I, I truthfully would say everyone should go to camp at some point because uh, the amount you learn and the amount that is surfaced in you during this week and the service that you're able to provide is just unbelievable and, and transformative. And they're looking for more people this summer. So if you have a free week, um, drive down to Missouri for a week and, and spend it serving the Lord in amazing ways. There you go. And remember, uh, if you go to our, our podcast website, which is painridiculousattentiontojesus.com, Look for Season 3, Episode 19, and you'll see a link there to Camp Barnabas. You can also just Google Camp Barnabas if you want to, but you can go to the link there. Um, you'll find other links that Adam has put up there on our page for resources we've talked about and stuff we want to make sure you know about, so it's a good place to go. And I have to say, it's, it's been such an honor to have my daughter here on the <laughs> podcast for me, it, and in a little over a week, she's going to be home again for about a month before she heads off to Barnabas, so... We're going to sit out on our deck with uh, <laughs> lights around the, the banister of our deck, and we're yes. going to talk for a while. Yes. Uh, I, can't wait, I can't wait for that to happen. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. This is, this is great. This surreal, is isn't it? It's surreal. <laughs> That's what you were thinking. Thanks for listening to my, my crazy camp stories. <laughs> well, gang, uh, I invite you to, to head over onto our, our podcast website also if you want to listen to past episodes in this series. We started—this is a third of four, so— if you go back two more from this one, you can hear the whole series on themes from Spiritual Grit. So, hey, gang, thanks for listening. And uh, remember, if you want to make sure that you get this podcast every week, subscribe to us on iTunes or any place you get your, your podcasts to make sure you get all the latest ones. And, hey, we'll talk again next week when Steph Hilberry will join me again on the podcast. See you then. Bye. Bye.